With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Well, Bob, last week we decided to record on a Tuesday. And we had a whole different outlook because the Tuesday game last week was a debacle. Uh, we wanted to have all kinds of positives based off of a good weekend and a good Monday, and then Tuesday happened, and and we were miserable. This week, we wait a day, record on a Tuesday, and the Phillies come out and score 10 runs in the first inning. They put out put up 14 on the Mets and bury New York, 14-3, to three, and all's right with the world again in, the, in uh, the world of Philadelphia baseball, right? Yeah, everything's fixed. Starting pitching's awesome. Bullpen's been lights out the last three games. Lineup is back in action after a slow weekend in Miami. Everything looks good. I have the Phillies winning the NL East with 94 wins. There How you about go. You? Yeah, same thing. Yeah. Yeah, no. what a difference a night makes. I, I will say that. Uh, it was a rough, rough game on Monday night. This was obviously much better and uh, fairly encouraging in several ways this evening. And I guess the start of our show, we should just jump into what happened uh, on Tuesday night, probably listening to this on Wednesday morning, Phillies do win 14-3 to tonight. I guess the the main story has to be the first inning, and uh, they put it on the Mets early and often. Steven Matz did not record an out, so 38 pitches by him, and he had been really good entering this game tonight, uh, but just completely ineffective. Uh, Three-run homers by Scott Kingery. Uh, and uh, Mike L. Franco, and I mean, it, it was it was a nice showing for the offense. After even though I know I know they scored six runs on Monday night, uh, a little bit of a sluggish weekend for the offense in Miami on on Saturday and Sunday. So it was nice to kind of see them bounce back with a solid performance. Yeah, no, and I, look, I mean, you know, Stephen Matz was not good for the Mets, but I mean, his defense was a disaster. I mean, they had four errors in the game. I think three were in that first inning, two by Ahmed Rosario, one by Jeff McNeil in left field. Yeah, and it really should have been two by Jeff McNeil in, in left field. It was a, a misplay on the on the ball on the off double. the bat of Real yeah. Muto, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was yeah. later changed to a double, but... Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was a defensive adventure. It was kind of reminiscent of the fly of the uh, Phillies from last year. Yeah, um, or, uh, or the Mets from most years. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, yes, the defense did did help the you know, the Mets defense did help the Phillies. This was the first time in the Phillies history that their first eight batters came to the plate in a game, not not eight in a row at any point, but eight the first eight batters of a game, and they all reached base. In the history of the franchise, it's been around since 1883, Bob. That's a hundred and what, 136, 26 years, whatever the heck it is. That's craziness. That's 136 years. That's uh, that's unbelievable. The that it's never happened before. But yeah, they they did the two three run homers, Kingery and Frank. Boy, you know, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna you know I'm gonna puff my chest out a little bit. How about that, Scott Kingery, the way he started this season. Anthony Sanfilippo had it first. Yeah, now you're uh, you're ahead of the curve on Scott Kingery. You were bullish on him this year, and uh, he's gotten off to a great start, I believe, after tonight's game. 
Uh, I don't know if he had another bad. I had tweeted this out. He was 11 for his first 21 uh, this season. It yep. took him 41 at bats to get to his 11th hit last season. So. He's certainly been a pleasant surprise, and they may need him because in the first inning tonight, though it was a great inning for the Phillies, there was one little little hiccup, and that is at the expense of the health of Gene Segura, who left the game at the end of the inning uh, with, I, I believe, hamstring tightness, and so we'll see how that plays out. Yeah. Um, the one thing, you know, if, if you're looking at Kingry's approach, again, 21 at-bats is just 21 at-bats, right? But um, the difference between this year and last year is he's incredibly aggressive early in the count. He's really he's really attacking, you know, mostly fastballs, but he's attacking pitches early on pitchers. He's not letting pitchers get ahead of him. And that was the thing that killed him last year. Like, he would get behind. How many times did we sit there and watch Scott Kingry get behind 0-2? Step in the batter's box, be yeah. on 0-2. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, and, was... and then how many times would you see a guy work him low and away, something all speed, and he would roll it over on right. the outer half to the left side of the infield? I mean, it was just the same thing over and over again. So, you know, Gabe Kapler talked a little bit about it after the game tonight, and he said it's not so much mechanical, it's more about confidence, and that's really been the biggest difference in approach and in really his effectiveness as a hitter. So it's not, oh, well, he's doing this, and if you were to break down the video, you would see these huge changes implemented to his swing. What you're really seeing is just a guy that said, all right, last year was last year, this is this year, I can play, I've been successful at every level I've ever been at, it's time to go now. And it, this start to me is almost necessary for Scott Kingery. Like there are guys that can get off to a slow start. Like you saw what JT Realmuto had done through 15 games this season. It, it wasn't great, but was anybody really concerned about JT Realmuto's ability to hit after two and a half weeks? No, no. But if Scott Kingery comes out and puts together, you know, a seven for 50 start. Uh, you know, I think that those doubts might creep in a little bit. For a young guy like this that struggled as much as he did a year ago, really big boost for not only this lineup, but I think for himself moving forward to kind of get himself going. Yeah. So he has five RBIs in the game. He has a three-run homer, and he has a two-run double later in the game. Franco hits another bomb. He's now got six home runs, 17 RBI. I mean, he's on pace for 100 RBI. Um, and those two were the two guys that were kind of competing with each other for playing time during spring training. But now the question becomes, how do you how, how do you make these guys play, Bob? I mean, do you, do you just keep letting, you know, keep making Kingry be the reserve guy and, you know, maybe gets, you know, a start here and there? Or do you think, well, maybe he should get more time? And who does it come at the expense of? Does it come at the expense of Cesar Hernandez? Um, you know, who's actually started to hit a little bit the last few games. I think he had, what, two more hits tonight. Um, I know Segura, we got to watch the injury. I mean, but, you know, if it's just tightness and he only misses a game or two, he'll be back. You're not taking him out of the lineup. So, so how do you make it work with these guys? I, I think that the, the obvious answer here is it's going to come at the expense of Cesar Hernandez. Now, I don't need this to be, and, and I guess if we just use this, if we use this in terms of plate appearance distribution, I don't need it to be a 50-50 split between the two players. I don't need it to be, um, you know, I, I don't want it to be an extreme split either where it's 90% to, to 10% one way or the other. But I think that Gabe Kapler, he, he played a lot of matchup last year. And this year he, he hasn't really done it. He hasn't had to do it. It's This is my lineup. Go get him. I, I think that now in light of what Kingery's done at the start of the season and, and Kapler talked a little bit about it after the game tonight, he said, I have to find more bats for him. So I think that it has to come at second base. There's just, to me, there's going to be nights where 
Mike Franco is not a great matchup for, for the starting pitcher or the opposing starting pitcher. And, and that's fine, and maybe Kingery gets a couple starts here and there at the expense of Franco, but I think that Hernandez is the most obvious candidate. I don't think that Cesar Hernandez is part of this team's future. Like, when the 2021 Philadelphia Phillies take the field in two years, I don't think Cesar Hernandez is here. So I don't really know why you wouldn't play Scott Kingery over Cesar Hernandez at least a little bit more. Now, you had mentioned it. He, he has been a little bit better here the last few games. He was one for three tonight with two walks. His average is up to 228. OPS is at 669. I actually thought it was interesting what Gabe Kapler did on Sunday, and, and it was exactly what I just talked about a moment ago. He sat down Michael Franco, um, and, and I think the obvious thing that he could have done in that spot was to, to kind of you know, go with Cesar Hernandez and put him on the bench for the day. But instead, he let both of them play, and both were ultra-productive on Sunday. And it was like more of a feel thing, I felt, on Kapler's part. So I think you can see that, or you might see a little bit more of that, but I do think it's really going to it, it's going to be Cesar Hernandez who takes a step back. Yeah, it has to be, almost. I mean, that, that's got to be the, the decision um, uh, moving forward. And, and, and you know... I, maybe maybe Bob's, you know, I think we briefly touched on this, I don't know, it was last week or two episodes ago. You know, maybe Cesar ends up becoming more valuable as that utility guy. You know, that you, you kind of flip roles for the two of them a little bit. Um, especially since he's a switch hitter, you know, I mean, he can... He can match up better against a bullpen than than Kingry could, um, so maybe that's a that's a better thing for for the Phillies to go that route. Um, and you know, and Hernandez can certainly play multiple positions. I mean, he's been almost exclusively a second baseman uh, for the last little bit, but I mean, he's he can play short, he can play third. He's done that. He's I mean, heck. He's actually, I think, even played one season. He had a couple games in center field, as a matter of fact. So I mean, so he can play around the diamond. Um, yeah, I just think that that might be a better long-term thing for the Phillies. And then, look, if, if Kingery struggles again, you can always go back to Hernandez because you know what you're getting out of him. Well, and here's the thing. I mean, the Phillies, I, I think, have to determine what do they think Scott Kingery is. Do they see him as an everyday player that can log 600, 700 plate appearances? Or do they think that now, upon kind of having him in the fold at the major league level for over a year now, is this guy uh, more of a utility type? Like, there are players and, and there are guys that you can kind of think back throughout the years that with overexposure came diminished results and diminished returns. Is that what Scott Kingery is? Or do they think that this is a guy that can play five, six days a week and play at a high level? And so I, I kind of, I guess, think that this isn't so much just about, well, he's playing well, we need to make sure that we're getting him the appropriate amount of bats. It's what, what do you see him as, not just on this team in 2019, but what do you view him as moving forward? Because if you think that he really can be an everyday player, then I don't think that you should delay the, the process of, of having him emerge as such. And so... I think it's more what is his role, what does the organization view him as, and I think that that's going to dictate a lot really how much he plays. Yeah, and I, I would I would like to think that, I mean, otherwise they don't look, you know, they make themselves look bad, but I would think that because of the money that they gave him last year, that they do view him as an everyday player. And, you don't, you don't and give I think a, they should, and, and yeah. I do as well. I think that yeah. he can be a, a good player, you know, 
It's easy to kill guys after a bad game, a bad week, a, a rookie season. And how many times last year did we have conversations and we're like, Scott Kingery is is brutal right now. And we talked yeah. about should the Phillies send him down. They never did it. But I feel like we always tried to preface our critiques of him with, we think he could be a pretty good player. Like I was always very reserved and, and I used a lot of caution when I criticized Scott Kingery because – there is a learning curve for certain guys. You don't always just hit the ground running. I think the guy is an everyday player, and I do think that he can play at a high level. Now, the Dustin Pedroia comparisons and all that other stuff, I think people got a little bit carried away with a hot spring and, and all that. And Maybe he has certain things in terms of his makeup that, that kind of resemble a guy like Pedroia, but I don't think that you're talking about a future you know, six, seven-time All-Star here, but I do think you're talking about a really good player. Yeah. I don't I don't get the infatuation with Cesar Hernandez personally. Like I I appreciate what he did here. Um I, I know that he kind of flirts with three hundred or he has in the past a little bit. Um some decent speed, although he's not a great base dealer, solid defensive player, not spectacular. Like he's a good player, but he's not a guy that I need to if if Kingery is this type of player and the Phillies think he's this type of player, I just don't think that you really need to worry too much about, well, what about Cesar? You know, and that's the thing that I I think is a little bit weird about this situation. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're, you're right. I guess it's a little it's a little difficult to, uh, you know, when a guy has, has performed as well as he has for the last three seasons, it's a little bit hard to just suddenly say goodbye to him. But, I mean, I, you know, I, you know the compare – not this isn't even a fair comparison, but the comparison that I can make is – Bobby Abreu was a good player, and I don't know. I know he was criticized a lot here, um, mostly for his defense. But I mean, the guy was a good hitter and good player on on you know mediocre, you know, bad or mediocre Phillies teams. And right when the Phillies were ready to win, they they got rid of him, and and not because he didn't fit. But because they you know they had other players that they wanted to you know they needed to get Jason Worth into the outfield and playing, and Shane Victorino into the outfield and playing. He was a Rule 5 guy. So they needed to do those things, and so the long-term plan was, well, who can we afford to, to move out of this situation? Um, and it was Abreu. And and that doesn't they didn't make you know diminish the fact that he was a decent player. It just said that, you know, we we like other players better. And if this the same situation arises here where the Phillies like Scott Kingery better long term than Cesar Hernandez, then guess what? Then you replace Cesar Hernandez with Scott Kingery and it's not an it's not a negative to Cesar Hernandez. It's just not. It's not sitting there saying no, he stinks. It's just that hey, we think we have a better player. This is the position that he needs to play and we're just going to go with it. And and you know, sorry about your luck, Cesar. But you know we're trying to win a championship, and you know the 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 small advantage that Scott Kingery gives us at that position over you, it, we think can make a difference in, in in making that run. So do you think that do you think he should start every day? Do you think he should start every day? Kingery, over Cesar Hernandez? yes. Do you? Yeah. Well, ultimately, yes. I I don't necessarily know if I would do it right this second. I mean, I because yeah, I, would... I I wouldn't. And, and yeah, go ahead. Yeah. yeah. No, no. I I think that. I think ultimately he should be the the everyday player at second base, but like I, I think that it's it's a thing where 
right now, and by the way, that's the dog in the background. If you're wondering what the hell that noise is, uh, the, dog, the dog is, I think he got something stuck in his throat. He's, he's trying working to hard. Yeah. yeah, he's working hard. <laughs> um, but, uh, I, you know, I think at, at this juncture, I mean, you don't want to, we don't want to fall in love with the fact that Scott King Reeves had 21 great at bats, right? And to start his season um, and suddenly declare that he should be a 700 at bat player. But at the same time, you know, when you see him get off to this kind of start, you sit there and say, okay, he should at least be playing half the time, uh, at least for right now. And if he continues to do this in the time that he plays, then you give him, then you get him more at bats, and then you get him more time. And if it, if that means that Cesar gets less, you know, in June, July, August, then so be it. But you know, for the next six weeks or so, I, I wouldn't have a problem with him split, kind of splitting the role at second base. And if you can get, you know. Kingery game at third every once in a while, um, or shortstop if Segura's you know hurt or needs a day off or whatever. Then and they're both in the lineup. Then okay, that's fine too. Yeah, um, and, the, and this stuff kind of has a way of working itself out. Like yeah. Michael Franco is doing what he's doing right now. Do I think that he can sustain this? No, but do I kind of have some level of expectation that that he's going to be that this is going to be Michael Franco's best season? Yes, I I do. But there may be a point in time where you say, like, okay, Scott, you're gonna you're gonna get a couple starts at third base. He's not hot right now, you know. He's struggling a little bit. Like, there's going to be ways to get him into the lineup. Like, I know that this is gonna be the hot topic, right? And we're talking about it ourselves. How do you get Scott Kingery involved? I actually kind of like what the Phillies did by by beginning the season with Hernandez. Now, I I just spoke about how long term he probably doesn't fit here. So why, you know, what are we actually even doing? But at the same time. I think that a part of Kingery's struggles last season had to do with expectations, had to do with pressure. Asking a lot of him very early on in the season, I think, negatively impacted him. We did not think on on March 5th of, of 2018 that Scott Kingery was going to be such a prominent player in the first month of the season. He really forced their hand, and the Phillies kind of ran with it. And then all of a sudden it didn't work out for him, you know? So I think that the Phillies took a little bit more of a conservative approach this year and said, hey, we're not going to make him an opening day starter. We're not going to ask him to be a guy that starts five times a week off the bat. We'll see how things play out, you know? And I think that they had so many question marks coming in with not only Hernandez, but with Franco's performance that they figured all three of these guys will play. And hopefully two of the three emerge lockdown spots and that this becomes easy or maybe all three of them play fairly effectively and, and it works itself out that way. And if they don't, then maybe we're going to have to add at the deadline. Like I, I think that they just went in and they kind of I'll use a Sixers word here throwback from the hinky era. But I think they they kind of just came into the season and said, forget the expectations. Let's come in with optionality and just see how this thing plays out. Yeah, and I and I, but that's that's the luxury of having a good lineup around these guys, right? Yeah. Because you can ha- you can play with optionality. If if you were dealing trying to make this dis- determination le- with last year's lineup, you couldn't. Like you you couldn't put yourself in that situation because you you needed to try and maximize whatever the hell you had because um, it wasn't it wasn't a good lineup. Um, but when you have you know. McCutcheon's been great lately. The last, I mean, it was funny. Like we were talking about him after eleven games, and now here they are. Here you are after sixteen, and he's, you know, hitting, you know, what, what's he up to now? I think he's uh, after tonight. He's up to two eighty three, right? I mean, he was he was two fourteen five games ago. So, and that's um, that's the, you talk about like if we did this on Monday night versus doing it on Tuesday night. I mean, yeah. if we were having this conversation last night, now JT Romuto had a big hit last night, but. I would have said, well, he's hitting 230-something. You know, yeah. that's why I, 
we like to use numbers and talk numbers and go a little bit deeper here, but early in the season, I'm really hesitant to do that because these numbers just change, and, and they can drastically change based on one night's performance. I mean, hell, look at Steven Matz, right? Like, yeah. if, if you wanted to talk about Steven Matz prior to tonight's game, he had a sub-2 ERA over his first couple starts. Now and he exits. He doesn't four, get an out. It's 4.96. 4.96, He yeah. went from 1.73 to 4.96. Yeah, which and, is and, still better than Aaron Nola and Nick Pavetta, by which the way. Which is less than We got that. Yeah, that's coming. Yeah. Yep. That conversation's coming. There are some negatives to talk about, believe it or not. Yeah. Uh, but we're focusing on the positive to start. Um, but, yeah, I mean, but the point that I was making is, is you know, when you got a guy like McCutcheon hitting the way he's hitting and Segura's hitting three three thirty and um you know harper's cooled off a little bit but even even still i mean his ops is pushing a thousand and um you know you can you can kind of you know get away with having optionality because of that so it's it's a it's a beautiful thing to have right now for the phillies and you know we've we've talked about franco before i don't want to you know keep saying how great he's been but 17 six homers 17 rbis batting eighth yeah the all-time record for RBIs out of the eight hole is eighty nine. I mean, he's got seventeen. It's it's April sixteenth. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's you know he's, I mean, he's I, making them count, right? Yeah. Like he's hitting. Uh, he's only hitting two fifty nine. But I mean, the OPS is is north of, of a thousand. A thousand, yeah. yeah. And on base, great about too. The, yeah. So, I mean, you'll take that all day. I I actually had a little bit of concern with Franco and the eight hole coming into the season, just because it was like, well. He's not being protected whatsoever. Are our pitchers going to attack him? If not, is he going to get himself out? Because he's shown a propensity to do that over the years. Just I constantly get himself out. But to this point, he's he's gotten pitches to hit and he's taken advantage of it. It'll be interesting to see what happens once now this the, the pitchers adjust. And that was one of the things I wanted to say about Kingery before we moved on with him. You talked about the big adjustment is he's so aggressive early in counts. Well, there's there's going to be an adjustment on the pitcher's part coming now too, and what happens once pitchers slow up on him a little bit, they they alter alter their approach. Can can Kingery kind of sustain this, and and once he starts working into deeper counts, can he still be productive? And I think that that'll be key as well. But yeah, as far as Franco goes, yeah, I mean, you, I think that pitchers have to start now evaluating him and saying, Jesus, I, you know, I think I can't let this guy beat me. So it, it's it's a really encouraging start through 16 games for these guys. Um, really, Kingery's it, all of his action has sort of happened over the last seven eight games, really. Um, so super encouraging from that aspect. But once those adjustments get made, can they sustain? And, and that's going to be the next phase of this. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely is. Um, and yet, you know, despite as well as this game went tonight, you know, 14 and 14 to three is the uh, is the final score. Um, I believe with uh, everything that went on uh, around baseball tonight, uh, around the uh, around the division. Um, it puts the Phillies in, uh, back on top in the division uh, by a half game over the Mets. The Braves also lost. The, the Nationals lost. And the Marlins, not that it matters, they lost too. Um, so you, you have uh, the Phillies, the only team that win, that win tonight, um, and they're back in first place again. So that, that's a good thing. But there's a lot of things that kind of are red flags that are flying right now. And, ah, you know, I hate to be the guy that brings them up, but – Holy hell! The the starting pitching is is scary right now. Um, the the bullpen, although it had a really nice game against the Marlins, still isn't very good. 
Um, and the, had a nice game. Had a nice game last night as well. Yeah, actually. it was all right. You're right. It was wasn't too bad last night. Wasn't too bad last night. Can't can't really blame I guess Nishek there and the way the game ends. No, you know, not it's not at really all. his not really his fault. Um, and uh, and the bench is is dreadful. <laughs> <laughs> Other than that, so the, other, so, the entire I mean, pitching staff is horrendous, and uh, they have no bench. So <laughs> that's the thing. I mean, that's so that's why, like you sit there and say like, they're ten and six, and that's great. It's a good start. I mean, for sure. I mean, if you spread that out over the course of a season, you know, they're they're going to win a hundred games, right? Be a, they would be one hundred and one and sixty one. That's the pace that they're on for. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. But and I, it's and it's probably because they have to figure out what the hell is wrong. With their pitching, Bob, and, yeah. and I, 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 Aaron Noll is the one that concerns me the most right now, um, because there's just this is just a complete 180 from what he was last year. Yeah. So, so if you rewind a couple weeks ago, I think the conversation was, well, you feel really good about what you have up top. Aaron Noll is one of the best pitchers in the National League. You're good there. That was the assumption yeah. coming in, and. There was some uncertainty about the back end of the rotation. We talked about it. Everybody talked about it. It was, well, what are you going to get out of Zach Eflin or Nick Pavetta or Vince Velasquez? These are a lot of question marks. Again, you have a few different options there. You have Eniel De Los Santos, who's actually thrown very well in two starts in AAA. Uh, He has a sub-1 ERA. Um, the whip is .67 right now. I mean, like, he's he's been really good in 12 innings in the minors. You have Jared Eikhoff, who we saw tonight, come in relief for Nick Pavetta, four shutout innings. Now, I don't know what the Mets' motivation level was, trailing, you know, 11, 12, 13, you know, runs, whatever the case was. But Eikhoff, very encouraging in those four innings. The, the problem is the back end of the rotation – has all of those question marks that we had coming in. They still exist. They, they remain. The problem is now the front of the rotation, anchored by uh, the guy that was, what, the, the second runner-up for Cy Young in the National League last season, has been a disaster. So I think that if we're going to talk about starting rotation concerns, it has to begin with Aaron Nola, and, and we can sort of work our way through. Yep. What – I'll tell you my impression. I'm I'm – I'm obviously concerned by the results to an extent. I'm not really ready to panic yet, though, because it's not an issue with velocity. No. It's not like the stuff doesn't look as good, and it doesn't seem to have as much run on it. But in terms of just is he hitting the same number on the gun, he is. So that would indicate to me that he's probably not hurt, and that would be the good news in this. Yeah, um, I, you're right. And uh I, to me, I don't necessarily. I don't think it's. Me- I don't even think it's mechanical. Maybe a little bit. I mean, there was a little bit of talk that um, that he was a, that he was a little bit ahead of himself from where he was last year. As as a, uh, talking about his delivery, that he's a little bit fast to the plate. And he needs to kind of slow it down just a hair. Um, but even if that, you know, even with that said, I mean, other than other than opening day against Atlanta when he was pretty solid. He's just been not not good at all. Now, four starts. The game last night, the weather was miserable, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it was miserable. So I don't know. Do you just sit there and chalk that up to it's hard to pitch in that? It's hard to get your ball to break with there's when there's twenty five mile per hour winds sustained all night long. I mean, that was a brutal weather to pitch in. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I don't know. He still had six strikeouts. 
in four innings last night. Um, you know, walks are a little up. That's that's scary. Eleven walks so far um, in in just nineteen innings. You know, if if you go beyond the numbers and you just forget that for a second and look at how he's pitching. He is throwing right now what I would call at times non-competitive pitches. And what do I mean by that? I mean, you're a batter and you're in the box and you see the ball come out of the hand. And at no point do you think, hey, I'm going to offer it this. Or, you know, this is a borderline pitch. Or I think it's heading here and wait, up. Oh, he fooled me. There are a lot of pitches that even when he's ahead of hitters, even when he has two strikes on guys, he's having a hard time putting away hitters, and he's throwing a lot of fat pitches because he's missing with the pitches that he was, was spotting earlier on, you know, in his career and, and certainly last season. So that's one part of it. I mean, he has no command of his fastball. He talked about the first start against the Braves. He didn't command his fastball in that start either. That was the primary issue he had in, right. in that's why, game one. That's why all those walks. Yeah. Now, not only that, but he also doesn't seem to have a feel for his changeup. And it's not all just about walks and, and you know, pitch inefficiency. It's also a lot of the, the, the two-seamers that he's throwing that have been so nasty. They're just running right back, center cut, and, and teams are squaring them up. And so he just really cannot spot the, the, the fastball for sure. And he really doesn't seem to have a good feel for his changeup right now. And I mean, if, if he's not doing those things, then he's in a world of trouble. And, and so the results really shouldn't be that surprising given that. Right. Now, he's, a, he's certainly a location pitcher. I mean, that's, that's, what, made, that's what makes him so good. Um, and when he's not hitting his spots, hey, you're going to get the results that we've seen so far. But So, so this is hard, though. So I, I'll ask you this. I mean, we look at what's going on with Aaron Nolan. We go, well, what the hell is this? But then you look at Noah Syndergaard, who was, was brutal yeah. last night. You look at what Jacob deGrom's going through with the yeah. Mets. You look at what Chris Sale is going through. Yeah. Scherzer, you know, Scher, even Scherzer's been hit a little bit. Yeah, too. he hasn't been great. He hasn't been up to his standard. So when you look at these guys, I mean, like there is there's the part of me that, that tries to remain calm and say it's four starts. It's April 16th. It's April 17th. You, you can't draw conclusions. At the same time, you've seen now three three starts in a row in which he's given up at least five runs, right? And it, I think everyone's probably heard this by now, but he didn't give up five runs in a start last season, and now he's done it three straight times out. Like, there is something to be said for that. That is a concern. We're almost at the point now where he's, you know, made, what, this will be his fifth start coming up? I mean, yeah. so, you know, he's, he's almost made 20% of his starts for the season. We're approaching that number here in a, in a week or two. So it, it is time to get going here. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, uh, I'll, I'll try and defend him a little bit. And I don't know. I don't know if I can, but I will try. Um, so the first thing I want to say, and you know, you point out all these other pitchers who are struggling, and uh, you know, I've I, I've had the the theory, the hypothesis, and um, I'm going to stand by it that the way baseball is today, that pitchers are just not ready anymore at the start of a season. Um, they they micromanage, uh, you know, the the amount of innings that pitchers are throwing over the course of a year, including with spring training, and they just don't get enough innings. They just don't get a, ch a chance to really throw enough in spring training while hitters are hitting constantly in spring training. And so by the time you get to April, hitters are ready, um, and pitchers just aren't. And maybe that you know they need another <laughs> need another month because they're not getting those innings. So that could be one thing. And the other thing is, and I look at these four starts, and we, you know, we talked about the opener was fine. Yeah, he was a little wild, but for the most part, he had eight strikeouts. He only gave up two hits, you know, in six innings. He, he was pretty solid in that game. 
Um, then he get then he then he got lit up in Washington. The game against Washington here, um, I felt that he was pitching really well until all of a sudden, like the last, <laughs> the, last the sixth yeah. inning, the sixth inning just kind of imploded on him. So when you really break down that story, yeah, yeah, you look at the, you gave up five runs, you give give up seven hits, you know, two home runs. And you sit there and say, well, that's not a great start. But when you really look at it, the first five innings, he was really good in that game. So, you know, he had one bad inning in that start. And then last, you know, last night, yeah, I, again, I could I could sit there and say, it's hard to throw the kinds of pitches that he throws. It's hard to get that curveball, you know, snapping. It's hard to, you know, really pick your spots when the, when the wind's blowing 25 miles an hour. So, you know, I can make an excuse for a couple of these starts. It doesn't mean I'm not concerned. But I can I can certainly make an excuse for Aaron Nola um, that maybe I don't feel as comfortable making for another pitcher that might be struggling because Nola has the track record to say that he's a lot better than this, whereas another pitcher does not. Well, you know, the good news is that he gets to go out to Colorado for his next start. <laughs> oh, so, absolutely. Yeah, it'd be great. <laughs> that, be should, great. that should go well, as, you know. It, it should be great out there. So that that's the thing, though. I mean, now we're going to get to start five, start six. I'm, I'm okay with that. I'll buy into some of what you're saying. For now, but if we see another clunker in the next start, I would become very concerned. And one of the things that was especially annoying was that really in the last two starts, the Phillies needed length out of Nola against the Nationals. He they, they they tried to stick with him. They tried to push him through that that last inning. He couldn't get it done for them. Same thing last night. I mean, they're coming off this brutal 14-inning game with the Marlins. They need him to go deep into the game last night or on Monday night. It doesn't happen. They He, he puts him in a 3 nothing hole. They bail him out, and then he still can't hold it down from there. Like, even when you don't have your stuff, you can't locate. Like, guys that are at that level, that pitch it at that level with that – type of hype and expectation they got to find a way to gut it out and like he hasn't been able to do that outside of the Atlanta game because in none of these games has he been on where you're like oh that's vintage Nola like that hasn't happened yet so I would say that he, he probably did gut it out against the Braves he made it work but in the last three starts he's had nothing I yeah. know, and and that that would be my concern with him. And just real quick, one note, and I talked a little bit about the the velocity not being concern. So according to MLB Statcast, Aaron Nola sinker, um, which is ninety one point four miles per hour on average, has the same velocity as last season. His four seamers down a little bit. It went from ninety two point seven to ninety two point two. It's that's not a huge issue. It's all about location and the location just to. It's not like a product of bad luck. Sometimes you can explain in small samples erratic results as just a product of it's luck. It'll even itself out. Check this out. The average exit velocity off the bat of hitters last season was 85.9, okay? This season, it's up to 90 miles per hour on average. That's a four-mile-per-hour jump in exit velocity. So, like, what does that mean for the practical, you know, from a practical standpoint or for the average fan? It means that guys are squaring up more balls and they're hitting them harder. And that's what happens when you don't hit your spots. And as a result of that, <laughs> the ERA is going to be up. The... Uh, on base percentage is going to be up batting average is going to be up slugging percentage which is through the roof right now compared to where it was last season that's going to be up and and so he he's got to find his command because if he doesn't this isn't going to get any better no you're absolutely right and i mean i mean there are other 
statistical measures that don't look good either. I mean, I'm not the biggest fan of of FIP, but uh, fielding independent fielding independent pitching, but his his FIP would be six point two four right now. Oof. That's that's terrible. That's absolutely terrible. Uh, his strikeout to walk ratio, he's usually close to four, is one point seven. I mean, that's that's not good. His whips at one point six. I mean. It, it, there's just nothing that's been that's been good, and I'm just hoping that the arguments that I just made uh, for him are in fact legit, and that you know we'll see the real Aaron Nola here over uh, the span of the next few starts, and then we won't have to worry about it. One, but, uh, one more thing there. Yeah, go ahead. You ready? Mm-hmm. He's allowed 17 runs through four starts. He yeah. didn't allow his 17th run until his 10th start on May 20th yeah. last season. So we have fallen a long way. Yeah, um, absolutely. Now you just talk about the rotation a little bit, um, and I, I certainly don't want to go too deep into to the rest of the guys, but Jake Arrieta has been fairly solid so far. The the one thing that I saw is, as good as Zach Eflin was the first two times out was he was just terrible, terrible on Saturday night. He gave the team no chance to win against a horrendous Miami lineup. It was, I thought, a, a fairly concerning result, but again – only three times out. Two of them have been excellent. One was really bad. I I can't even read into that at all. Like I can't say anything one way or the other with Zach Eflin. Well, and I, I just you know I, I'll say this, um, and you know, I don't I don't think this is too far gone. But if you look at Zach Eflin over the course of his Phillies career, that's been he's been really been, good and then really bad. Yeah, yeah. I mean yeah. That, he's extremes, right? I mean he he has some really good stretches of really good starts, and then he gets. He doesn't just get average. He gets bad. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, that's why he ends up being average in the long run. But, um, yeah, it's just – I don't know if that's a focus thing. I Who knows? I don't know. But, uh, uh, yeah, it's just yeah, – that. that's – I think that's just Zach Eflin. I don't think I would sit here and say, oh, my God, it's a concern. He had a bad game. I think that that's what you just – you know, that's why Zach Eflin's your number four pitcher. And you, you just hope that – you know, more often than not, two out of every three, you're going to get the good Zach Eflin. And then if you get the bad one on the third one, well. Yeah, and honestly, <laughs> that's kind of where I'm at with Vince Velasquez still as well. Both of his starts have been fine, and he was pretty good against the Marlins on Sunday afternoon. Again, it, it was the Marlins, though. Like, I can't – I like it. It's encouraging, I guess. You know, It's a, dub- it's certainly, it's a, du- it's a double-A lineup. Yeah, <laughs> it's the result that you would prefer to see as opposed to him getting hit around like Eflin did the night before. But, again, I – I don't feel any necessarily. I don't feel any better about that. The you know Vince Velasquez and what he's done than I really did a week ago. So yeah, again, positive start. Uh, I'm willing to see it out, but I, I kind of have a feeling where that's going. Now the the one that kind of gets interesting. We talked about it. Like they do have some options down there. Um, Nick Pavetta, I think, is dangerously close to, to being removed from this rotation. And again, I've I've talked about exercising caution and, and preaching patience. I just look at this and five innings tonight, seven hits, three walks. I believe he hit a batter as well. He was staked to a ten nothing lead after the first inning, and he still only lasted five. It took him a hundred pitches to get through it. He's been a, a nightmare really uh, through his first four turns in the rotation. Eight three five ERA. The strikeouts aren't really there. Um, the, the velocity is – is I, I did a piece on him a week ago. The velocity is somewhat similar. It, it's not like a drastic drop, but he just – he's getting hit when he's in the zone. And, and we haven't seen those starts that he was able to mix in from time to time last season where you go, ah, yes, 
there it is. That's the stuff that we keep talking about. This is why he has such a high ceiling. We don't see that at all right now. Um, I, I'm thoroughly unimpressed with him. Yeah, I, 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 he has no confidence at all in his curveball. Um, you could see it in, in every pitch. I mean, I, that was what I was really watching uh, w- with him tonight. Obviously, you know, with a 10-run lead, you're, you're going to kind of focus a little bit more on specific things. You're not worried about him blowing the game. Um, even though I did text that to you, and and then then he promptly gave up a home run, as like within a minute of me texting that. Um, but sure uh, did. But uh, anyway, it, the thing that concerned me was more um, that he really couldn't. He had no command on it, and the the curveball was either way the hell out of the zone and not even worth offering at. Um, or it just didn't break enough, and the two home runs that he gave up, I believe. Both were on curveballs. Um, and, uh, I mean, Conforto's was opposite field. He actually went out and got it a little bit, but it did. It hung. It was a hanging breaking ball. It didn't, it didn't get out of the zone. Um, and if you can't – if he can't command that curveball, well, then that's, that's, the, that's why he's going to get hit. Like, he's got he's to use it. That's his next best pitch. He's got to be able to have that be a pitch that, that a batter has to worry about. But if they're just going to say, I mean, they're not even, I'm not even going to sit here and say they're spitting on them because they're not even, most of them aren't even close. A lot of his pitches were so far out of the zone. That's why he was throwing all those extra pitches. You said it took 100 pitches to get through five innings. Well, you know, yeah, 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 he hit a batter um, barely. I mean, it kind of grazed the the jersey, but that counts. Um, and he did give up some hits, but I mean, the, the walks early, the leadoff walk to start the game, um, you know, just putting guys on base because he's, He's nibbling, 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 and not controlling that breaking ball. And until he does, th- this is what the result is going to be. And that's what – so he's got to find that, and he's got to find it fast. I agree with you. I don't think he's got much more of a of rope left uh, as far as the rotation. I think he has maybe one more start, maybe two at most, uh, to kind of – figure it out and fix it, and then Nick Pavetta could very well be out of the rotation. Yeah, I, I expect probably two more starts. And if, if there's not improvement, I do think they will make a move. And I think part of the reason they might make a move is because of the guy that came in and mopped up for him tonight, a four-inning save for Jared Eikhoff, who uh, pitched four scoreless innings. He had six strikeouts, a curveball. Um, the, the thing that really did impress me is almost the exact opposite of what you just talked about with Pavetta was Eikhoff's curveball was sensational tonight, um, and he threw it with a lot of confidence, and he looked like a different guy out there. He seemed to kind of have his confidence back. You know, when he came back at the end of last year, after all of the issues that he had, the season was pretty much over. It was more just like a, hey, you, you did it, man. Like, you made it back and you threw a couple innings and good on you. But he wasn't really out there with any conviction, to, to use one of Gabe Kapler's words. Tonight, I mean, he looked like he was feeling it. And it was really encouraging to see. And I think that it's going to be tremendously important that Eikhoff is effective for this team because I think he's going to throw a lot of innings for them. Between all the uncertainty that you have with Eflin Velasquez, Pavetta, I think that he's the first guy up. And so what we saw tonight, though, again, not a a high-leverage situation. It was in relief. The game was out of hand. Uh, It looked good. And uh, I think that he's going to get a shot. And I don't think he's going to have to wait too much longer to to get it. Yeah. And, you know, I've I've always felt, and I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I think he's the top of the rotation starter, but um, I've always felt that he deserved to, to really have an opportunity here again. Um, yeah, you know it's it's hard to lose a job because of injury. 
Um, and, and he was not good before he got hurt uh, two seasons ago and then missed, you know, the whole second half of the season, 2017, um, and then missed almost all of 2018 with those, you know, recovering from those injuries. So, uh, you know, it's, yeah, it's, okay, well, you know, we were supposed to do hold his job for two years. No, but at the same time, you know, you can't forget the fact that the guy was actually a decent pitcher um, prior to having that bad half season that led to him missing a year and a half. So, um I, yeah, I I would like to see Jared Eikhoff get another opportunity and see what happens. And if he's if he's no good, then he's no good. And if but if he can get be anywhere close to what he was prior well, to his 20, injuries, if you give me twenty sixteen yeah. Jared Eikhoff, yeah. yeah, or what we saw at times in twenty seventeen, like you said, he did struggle a little bit. But I just I I think that he's going to be. He's going to be a part of it. And the thing that I, I liked about Eikhoff in, in 2016 was that he was steady. Like, he would never wow you, but it just seemed like every time he was out there, he gave the team a chance to win. And really, with this rotation, that's that's kind of what the Phillies need. You know, when you're rebuilding, you want guys that have power arms with high ceilings that, that could project to be top of the rotation guys. Jared Eikhoff was never that guy. And for that reason, I was kind of always like, eh, whatever. Now, sign me up for that because with this offense and the way that this team is constructed, if you just put together a performance from the starting pitcher that doesn't sink you, on most nights you're going to have a chance to win the game. Yep. And so this is what the Phillies have to avoid are these disastrous starts. You know, if you can just get the, the 6-3 and three or the 5-2 and two out of the starters, they'll be okay. But these, these blow-up starts that these guys are having, I mean, it's just it's, it's been tough. Yeah. I believe that the Phillies, this was their 16th game tonight. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that they have only had six quality starts so far. That's not good. Yeah, so um, that's that's not going to get it done. Um, nope. With no, that said, not. they are 5-5 five and five, uh, in games in which they don't get a quality start. I, and that's that's high to play 500 baseball uh, in that scenario. So it's it's almost unsustainable to continue to win with the type of starting pitching that they've gotten. Yep. And and, and then you got to look at the bullpen. And I guess, you know, they had a real nice game in, in Miami on Sunday against a bad lineup. Uh, they were decent last night against the Mets. Uh, and Eikhoff was good again tonight. I mean, I don't know if you consider Eikhoff part of the bullpen. I mean, he was tonight, so it counts. But, um, you know, losing David Robertson to, you know, elbow soreness, that's got to that's gotta be a huge red flag. I mean – if his elbow's hurting him now, and he's gonna go, and they immediately put him on the IL after after he pitched with soreness in that elbow, that doesn't bode well. Yeah, there was an update on him after the game tonight. So he was diagnosed with a grade one flexor strain in his right yep. elbow. Uh, Kapler said, and this was from Matt Breen, give him credit here. Uh, Robertson will not throw for a couple days before being reevaluated. To me. Uh, it, it sounds encouraging in the sense that this isn't like, hey, he has a torn UCL, uh, at least not right off the bat. I would say that you probably will not see David Robertson at the earliest until the middle of May. Yep. You know, this isn't going to be, oh, he threw a, a pen, you know, this weekend in Colorado and he'll be back next Friday. Uh, I don't I don't foresee that. I think that this is probably going to be a three to four week thing. Best case scenario. You know, if he goes out and throws a bullpen in a couple of days and the thing acts up again, this could be this could be a real serious issue. Yeah, I mean, you know, flexor strains are, are no joke. I mean, 
that's what knocked Velasquez out with his injury. Was that uh, two seasons ago? When did he get hurt? Uh, yeah, he made was, it through last season, so it was probably it was 2017. Two, so 2017, yeah. right? Yeah. If nothing else, he was durable last yeah, year. Yeah, he had a flex. Yeah, he had a flexor strain. Um, you know, so that knocks you. I mean, it could it it could flexor strains could be uh, something that you know is not just a short term injury. Um, so that's concerning because you know Robertson is the guy that you sit there and say is probably the best arm in your bullpen, and now you're suddenly taking him out of the mix for. At, you know, at least three weeks, if not longer. Um, so that's a concern as well, because uh, then you basically have last year's bullpen again, <laughs> which which we know did not make it through the season very well. Um, the one guy in the bullpen who's been great, and I can't believe I'm about to say this, but he's been great, <laughs> is Adam Morgan. He's been awesome. He's been unbelievable. I, I it just it just blows me away that yeah, he's, he's doing as well as he is. <laughs> same. It really does. Um, that Chris Young magic, I guess. <laughs> well, at least hasn't rubbed off on anybody, anybody else. else. But <laughs> Adam Morgan and him—they've made a connection. That's for damn sure. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, really, I mean, I mean, Nishek's been fine. I mean, you know, Nishek's been Nishek. Um, I'm actually a little bit encouraged to see Victor Arano back up and pitching well. Pitching uh, well. I believe he yep. has two appearances, four innings, and against Miami, he struck out six in two innings, I believe. Yeah. So the reason why I'm a little bit more encouraged than than I might otherwise be is because there is a little bit of a track record there. He was very good for this team last season, uh, especially in the early going into the middle of the year, and, and he cooled like everybody else did toward the end, but... Good to see him back up here contributing, and and I think that he will help. Yeah, I mean, you know, so we'll see. We'll see. the The bullpen is, uh, you know, to me is still is always a concern. Um, uh, but I would probably say this if I was hosting a podcast for, you know, thirty other baseball teams as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there are a lot of bad bullpens out there. That was one of the things I wrote. I'm like, you know, don't don't overreact. You don't need to go sign Craig Kimbrell yet, you know. And, yeah. and that's kind of been my thing, and that's I'm sticking to it. But when I was doing that research, I'm looking at the numbers across the league, and it, they're they're ugly. Yeah, yeah, you know, ties into the they're just not ready thing. So I mean, we'll see if the bullpen is still where if still putting up the same numbers a month from now that they're putting up now. Then then we can you know really start to worry but um yeah i mean it's I, bob i'll tell you we're 16 games into this thing and i i still feel the same way about the team as i felt coming into the season i still think that they're gonna end up right about where you know you and i think that they're gonna end up um who knows i mean I, you know, anything can happen but that's there's nothing that has happened so far to the season that has made me say oh well i wasn't expecting that yeah, well, I'll tell you what. I actually do have one thing I want to touch on, and, and I'll use that line. I wasn't expecting that to uh, kind of segue into it. I want to talk a little bit about Reese Hoskins and what we've seen from him at first base so far. Uh, when they, Gold glove? Yeah. When the <laughs> Phillies went out and signed Andrew McCutcheon, we, we were talking about the benefits of this because, one, you get somebody that played the defensive equivalent of having a trash can out in left field, out of left field, and moving him over to first base. Um, his natural position, and I use the word natural uh, loosely, it hasn't been real pretty for Reese Hoskins at first base so far. And uh, I'll go through some numbers. Again, it was only 15 games he didn't play tonight, but he ranks currently 22nd among 22 qualified first baseman in fielding percentage, which is admittedly not the most 
accurate judge of, of defensive performance. Um, but I will tell you that he also is negative three in defensive runs saved so far, which is the worst in Major League Baseball. And that uh, via Fangraphs, his uh, defensive rating, which is fielding runs above average plus positional adjustment, is 18th among first basemen out of 22. Yeah. Uh, he does not grade out in any way, uh, even close to average uh, in basically any metric. Uh, it has not been good. Uh, I would argue that he's made three mistakes, two of which were errors. Uh, that directly led to Philly's losses. Um, if you go back, obviously, to the Washington game, uh, the second game of that series, the day game, Phillies came back, had an 8-6 lead. They were clinging to a one-run lead in the eighth inning. Sir Anthony Dominguez had a comebacker. He threw the ball over to first base. Hoskins missed it. All hell broke loose. Nationals tied the game, went on to win it. Uh, Saturday game against the Twins, which they lost. Uh, it was the only game they lost in that series. There was a pop-up at the beginning of that inning down the first base line uh, towards the stands. Hoskins pulled up about 10 feet short. I don't know where he thought he was on the field. Uh, did not make the play on a foul out. Uh, that led to a walk, and that later turned into a three-run homer that broke the game wide open. Instead of being down 3-2 in the ninth, that turned into a 6-2 loss. And then you had the uh, miscue last night in the in extra innings off the bat of Michael Conforto. Uh, that, that's a, a 10 out of 10 ball for a first baseman, and he just didn't make the play. Uh, he's transitioning back after a wasted season in left field. He should have never been out there in the first place. I'm willing to grant him some rope f- for that reason. Uh, is, is this a concern? I mean, it is a concern, but how much of a concern should it be? Well, it's a concern in – and I'm not just gonna. I'm gonna say. I'm gonna make it a little bit more of a broad stroke, um, instead of just really highlighting Reese. Although I think you broke it down really nicely, and um, and you're not wrong. I have a concern about the entire team's defense. Okay, so that's starting pitching, the yeah. bullpen, <laughs> and the entire team's defense. Well, look, they're not as bad as they were last year, but it's not like they suddenly turned into, you know, uh, the, the, uh, a bunch of Gold Glove candidates. I mean. Uh, they're, they've got 10 errors so far, which I think ranks 11th out of the 15 teams in, in baseball. Um, and there was a couple of plays that I thought, you know, like you pointed out there with Hoskins, that you know, maybe they you know, should have gotten different, you know, outcomes, even though there weren't errors on the play. Um, you know, Segura's got three errors, but, you know, they're all th- they're mostly throwing errors. Throwing, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's just – his arm is just like way ahead of himself sometimes, and that's you know that bothers me. Um, uh, you know, Cesar Cesar makes some boneheaded even though he's only got two he's got two errors. He makes some boneheaded plays in the field sometimes. Uh, I don't think anybody with the Phillies was was coming into this season though saying that this was going to be some type of elite defense. I think that the, the no, but the plan I still, was to just try to be. Incrementally average. better, yes. Well, just be average. On the and, I, 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 average. and I still think they're below average. Yeah. And that's that bothers me. That bothers me that they're still below average. I don't know. I, we'll see. You know, I'm, I mean, yeah, I'm I agree. An, I mean, I don't think that they've played outside of those first four games. I don't think that they've played terribly crisp baseball. Uh, I, I think that that would be a fair assessment. They haven't run yep. the bases. I, I'll, actually, I, I'll go back on that. They've done some really nice things on the bases. There have been multiple occasions in which uh, Andrew McCutcheon well, he's a great has, has been fantastic. Yeah. Uh, Bryce Harper, a couple of aggressive situations where he's been able to grab extra bases. With that said, uh, ran through a stop 
sign in this game tonight. He did, and uh, he was thrown out at the plate. Uh, I actually thought that, that he should have never been sent uh, on Sunday. Yeah. Um, and that, that could have cost them that game. They've they've been sort of erratic on the bases. Like they've done some really nice things, and then there's been some blunders, um, and that's to be expected. I think that you could say that about every team. So I'm not. That's not a, a necessarily a point of concern for me. But right. when I look at this team overall, you just you see the the erratic bullpen performance, the starting rotation. It just can't get anything going on a consistent basis. You see a couple base running mistakes. You see some defensive blunders, and you just go, Jesus, this team, this team's ten and six. This team's yeah. in first place right now, and and with a lot to feel good about. But it's again, I think it's when you watch something day in day out, you start to pick it apart, and it's easy to identify all these issues. And when you take to to kind of use your term, the the broad stroke, if you step back and look at it from a league wide perspective. I'm sure that you could go through every single team and go, well, they don't do this well, and this is a problem, and I'm concerned about that. And, right. You know, so it's – there's a balance to it, right? Like I think that you can have a critical eye, and there are things that you can be genuinely and, and be concerned about, and it, it's valid. At the same time, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, they, they have, I guess, overall played fairly well, so. Yeah. Uh, I'll, t- I'll tell you something else that um, I've seen – I want to tell you something I've seen enough of. I've seen 17 too many at bats for Aaron Altair. Yeah, it's 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 over. I mean, it's, we talked m- about him last week, and you know, Roman Quinn at some point has to come up here, and I don't know when that will be, but I just yeah, it's got to be. He's got to be. be the one He's that goes. Got to be. I know. And they instead of sending Nick Williams down, they, it's got to be. See you later, Aaron Altair. I yeah. mean, he's yeah. I feel yeah. like they gave him a start tonight to be like, okay, show us. Yeah. And he, he was 0 for 5. Yeah, he did not show us. <laughs> so <laughs> that did not happen. Yeah, so that's just a, just one other um, thing. I, I do want to ask you one more thing. And this is uh, – I got into this last night with some of the uh, more traditional folk, I guess. Uh, in the eighth inning, the Phillies trailed 6-5. to five, And uh, they worked a couple walks, uh, very patient at bats. And uh, Gene Segura uh, – and it's hard to walk Gene Segura, by the way. He walked with the bases loaded and two outs to tie the game. Bryce Harper uh, then stepped into the batter's box after Segura walked on four consecutive pitches uh, that were out of the zone, and he swung at the first pitch, and he popped out to shortstop. Mm-hmm. People went ballistic. Like, you just watched the guy before you take four pitches out of the zone. How do you swing at that? Where are you at on this issue? I have zero problem with him swinging at it. Really? See, I thought you were going to be like the old curmudgeon that's like, that's not how you play the game. Well, it's okay. So here's the but here's the difference. Because you're totally right, by the way. Yeah, but here here's the difference. It depends on the batter, right? So it, you know, you're in a what, what do you have Bryce Harper hitting third for? What are you paying him three hundred thirty million dollars to do for? damage? Right to do so that's so in that case, I have no problem if he thinks that that pitch is is in a in a zone where he wants to swing the bat and try and make a difference. Go right ahead. I, I'm totally fine with that. Now, if if it's, you know, Andrew Knapp coming up after Gene Secure just walked <laughs> on four pitches and he swings at the first pitch, I probably lose my mind because it's a big difference there. Like it's like, okay, look, dude, you're 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 a backup catcher. Like freaking take a pitch. But Bryce Harper, absolutely. Absolutely. If he thinks that first pitch is a groove, gonna be a grooved fastball after he just walked the tying run in. Go right ahead, my man. Give it a shot. Yeah, and it was a very hittable pitch. And and that's the thing. I just think from a philosophical standpoint, yes, it has to do with the guy that's up. But if you're going to be 
in a situation in which you're trying to drive in runs, you are oftentimes the first pitch that you see is going to be the best pitch that you'll have the entire at-bat to hit. Now, people are going crazy over the fact that he swung the bat here. Oh, by the way, it was a strike. It was a hittable pitch. And had he taken it, he would have then been behind in the count 0-1. There's a decent, and I would say better than not, a chance that he was not going to see another pitch in that entire at-bat that he could handle as well as he handled or could have handled that first pitch. It was fat. I thought it was it was the right call. I liked the aggressiveness. That's what you want to see out of a guy in that spot. And and it's just like I think that sometimes fans go, well, like, you know, I played Little League, and I know that my coach used to say that's not what you do there. But, I mean, this isn't Little League. These guys can throw strikes. There was a decent chance that he was going to come back and challenge him in the zone early in that at bat. I had no problem with it. And, you know, I, I – there was a certain talk show today that spent a decent amount of time uh, on this subject, and I just I wanted to put my head through the windshield. Um, yeah. Well, let me let me just throw this at you, and not that not that I'm going to give you some numbers that you're going to be like, see, this is making our argument, but then I'm going to give you some numbers and be like, oh, okay. Um, Bryce Harper in his career swinging at the first pitch has a 362 batting average, 368 on base, 704 slugging. 1.072 OPS. For if this is in 400 504 plate appearances, 42 home runs, 106 RBIs. Why would you not want him swinging with the bases loaded in a tie game at a first pitch fastball that's over the plate? When you hear those numbers, are, that to me is I, I the ex, exact reason he swings at that pitch. Yep. That said, in 0 and 1 counts in his career, he's got the same exact batting average, same exact on base. <laughs> That's slightly, great. That's, slightly, that's awesome. Slightly, slightly lower slugging. He, but, that would yeah. make him an anomaly, though, because <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, the, the average uh, <laughs> I, and OPS significantly drop. Significantly different. Oh, I, yeah. I know, and that's why I was sitting here saying to myself. Yeah, that's funny. Because I, 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 I was like, I'm going to pull this up because I'm going to make that argument, and I was like, oh, wow, he's actually <laughs> yeah. just as good at 0-1 as he is at 0-0. Yeah, how about that? Yeah. <laughs> so, but anyway, I mean, really, I mean, when, you hit, when you're hitting 362, like that's how dare you not say, say say no take that pitch come on man the runners the ducks are on the pond you can win the game with a hit oh, man that, I was you, ready for the swing. lively debate on that one I'm like I'm gonna ambush him I know what he's gonna say here <laughs> I had you wrong usually I think I know where you're coming from but man yeah. I, I had you wrong on this one good yeah, good for you yeah. well thanks thanks yeah. Bob I'm you know keeping you keeping you you know on your toes <laughs> a little bit hey, by the way I just wanted to point out I knew that there was somebody else I was trying to think of it when we were talking about David Robertson with the flexor strain that's what Tommy Hunter has he's got the grade one flexor strain. And and we haven't seen him in what two months now. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, it's, and they're saying at least through the end of April, if not in the May. So I mean that, that so that David Robertson injury could be a little, little bit longer than we think. Yeah. So great. Anyway, just thought I'd point that. <laughs> just thought I'd point that out. But uh, hey, I got one last thing, Bob. All right. <laughs> we haven't done it's this. It's been a while. A while yeah. Yeah. Um, great article in the Athletic uh, last week. I think it came out um, last Wednesday. Uh, Jason Stark. Um, and the title is very simple, very direct. Are MLB managers becoming obsolete? And he opens the story with a great little story, with a great little anecdote. Um, he says he's sitting in a uh, dugout at the end of towards the end of last year um, with a front office member of a team. He doesn't identify who who he's, who he's with. 
Uh, but he's sitting in the dugout, and they're looking at the dugout across the field against you know the opposition. And uh, they were talking about the two different managers, the manager of the team that you know the front office guy has, and then the manager of the other team. Um, and uh, the, the the front office guy says, "Our guy is a manager." Then pauses and says, "And their guy is a middle manager." Um, <laughs> <laughs> so immediately, I'm thinking they're talking about Gabe, um, but it's not uh, because he does like that. Go on later in the story, goes on to say that the the middle manager, quote unquote, uh, was on a team that had more wins than losses. Um, so the Phillies did not. So therefore, it couldn't be about Gabe. But uh, th- this was the interesting thing. I mean, this was the this was the two paragraphs that I wanted to throw out there. Um, his manager was a guy empowered by the front office to run the game and run his team with nearly the kind of autonomy Earl Weaver once had or Tony La Russa or Bobby Cox just in a 21st century sort of way. The other manager worked for a different kind of team with a different kind of front office and a different outlook on modern leadership. Let's just say it couldn't be more obvious than when that manager ran a game. He was making decisions not based on gut or experience. Those were decisions based on cough, cough, pregame advice from the boys upstairs. Um, and then he later on goes to talk to several managers around baseball to ask what they feel. And the, the most interesting quote from any of those managers is Bruce Bochy, who's been managing for 25 years. Um, and uh, he goes on where I got to find the quote um, uh, where Bochy basically says that it's I mean, uh, oh, shoot, I lost the quote. Uh, Bochy basically says that it, the game has changed to the point where general managers and their staffs are telling managers how to manage games. So I ask you, Bob, does the manager matter anymore? In, in professional baseball only? Yes. Because yeah, I, okay. I know I'm asking, <laughs> they, I'm asking they a very much. Coach yes, they very <laughs> much matter in the high school level, I will tell you that. Um, yeah. yeah, it does. And I, I think that, and you know this, I, I think that even as um, – the decision-making aspect of things lessens, and I think that that will continue to trend uh, in that direction. I do think that there is something to be said for management of personality, um, enforcing in, enforcing rules, creating culture, um, trying to create a place to play that's enjoyable yet one that has accountability. I think that uh, going through the ups and downs and of, of a season and trying to manage all the different personalities, I do think that there's a right guy for that and a, and a wrong guy for that. And I do think in that way, the manager's still valuable. Now, from a, a tactical standpoint, I would, I would suspect if, if you're looking at like 30 teams that you're going to have like a 20 to 10 split. You know, 20 teams are going to go more, let's look at the numbers and, and use the data and roll with what that's, what, with what it says, whereas there's going to probably be about 10 organizations that, that kind of live in the past, so to speak. I think that... I think that a manager does not matter as much as it used to, uh, but I do think it, it still matters. I think that that's the bottom line. I don't really know how – I don't have a creative way to say it, but I think that there are certain guys that are going to be able to leverage the data that they have and make the best decisions possible better than other managers. And I think mm-hmm. that that's going to become the the new art form of being a manager. You know, How are you able to interpret on the fly the information that we provide in-game? Yeah. So I, I found the, the Bochi quote. 
He says, uh, you, oh, you've always had collaboration. There's, that's always been there. But now you're looking at daily collaboration with a lot of people, your baseball analysts, general manager, president, with ideas and lineups, how to use your pitching, your starter, your relievers. No question the game has changed and it's a different job. I think my style of managing, not that I shoot from the hip, but I like to think I've always gone into a game and kind of had my script, how I want to do things, but you have to adjust on the fly, whether you're pitching, hitting, or managing in this game. And there are times you have to go with your gut, you know, making a lineup change or a pitching change during the game. So sure, I've gone with my gut a lot. I, I just I just love that quote from Bochi basically saying, and look, and this is a guy who's who's leaving the game, right? He's already announced he's retiring at the end of the year. Um I just, I just like that, you know. That yeah, and the, the other thing that you have to kind of take into consideration is if more and more teams are going to take the analytical approach, which they are, you need something that that differentiates you from the pack. Like if everybody's doing the same thing and making the same decisions based on the same information, there has to be some type of of outlier. There has to be some type of factor in with within the process. And obviously, talent is is the major player in this. But I think that you you need someone that, like I said, is able to take those conversations and make best you know make the the best of them. Yeah. Um, so it, you know, I don't think that the role of the manager is is ever going to be completely diminished or, or anything of that nature. I think it is certainly though, like Bochi said, it's a it is a much different job than it used to be. Here's Joe Madden. Same question was asked to him because um, they were re- referring to that middle manager. Thing And here's what Madden's response was. He goes, as a middle manager in a game where you feel like you're being controlled, it would be almost impossible. I mean, I couldn't do that. I couldn't make decisions based on, is somebody going to be upset with this? Or what would he want, want me to do right now? That would be awful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So it just it's it's just interesting um, that there are – but there are – you know, you look around the league and there are teams – Everywhere that have younger managers, uh, yeah, former players and the like, but uh, younger managers who started to embrace, you know, the analytics, um, you know, in the last five to ten years, and they're more willing to be, uh, you know, a little bit of a Stepford manager. So what happens with, when with they them? take it a step further and they yeah. say, now we're not going to try to find a young, uh, a young guy that's going to be receptive to analytics. We're going to actually just put the analyst in the dugout. Yeah. Like, that's coming. Well, I know it's coming. There's no doubt it's coming. I, You know, it's it's interesting. I think we talked about it, Bob, when we – I want to go back to one of our first podcasts a, a little over a year ago. Um, Gabe had uh, – I don't know if it was the fr- – I don't remember if it was the first set of home games at Citizens Bank Park or if it was in spring training. I want to say it was at the first set of home games that they had their director of analytics in uniform – in the dugout, but it was just for that fir- first opening mm-hmm. home stand, and then that was it. And then he wasn't going to be there again. But like, I-, I think that's like kind of an experimental thing to see how it works. That he's able to just you know give you he's the numbers cruncher and able to just give it to you right there, so you don't have to look it up yourself. I I, I don't like that a little bit. Like <laughs> you know, I don't want I don't want my ma- I want my manager of my baseball team to be a guy who has a feel for baseball and isn't just making the most uh, mathematically advantageous decision. That, that's just Yeah, me. absolutely. I mean, I think that everybody that talks about the numbers and the way that the game's progressed, 
Oh, he says it's got to be a blend of the two. Oh, that's easy. It's, it's easy to say it's got to be a blend of the two. It's it's how do you blend the two? When do you right. pay attention to the numbers and when do you not? And when do you use that feel and when do you rely more on the data? And yeah, I, if you put somebody in there that just simply always, it's robotic. You rely on the formula in front of you. Um, I, just, I, I can't imagine that would end well. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But I just, I just thought it was interesting. You know, it was a, it was a really good article by Jason. I, I recommend if you have an athletic, a scholarship to the athletic, uh, scholarship. Did I just say scholarship? Subscription <laughs> to the athletic. It's late. It's, yeah, it's very late. We cross midnight as usual. Yeah, yeah. as usual. Um, but if you have a subscription to the athletic, look up Jason Stark in the title, Are MLB Managers Becoming Obsolete? It's a really, really good article. So, uh, and I thought it was worthy of talking and we had a good conversation about it. So I'm glad we brought it up. Got anything else? Are we good? I got, yeah. I, got, I got nothing else. We've gone over an hour. We, you know, we've yeah. gone pe- we, we hit all our benchmarks. We, you know, we talked about the Phillies. We talked about positives and negatives. We did one last thing. We recorded after midnight, and we went over an hour. Yeah. We, we've, hit, we've hit every, every check True off every form. box. True to form. True to form, yeah. Bob. We did everything we're supposed to do. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, oh, I guess looking ahead, we always do this too. This is the one other thing that we uh, haven't done yet. But looking at the head at the rest of the Phillies schedule before we come back uh, with another episode of the podcast um, there's an afternoon uh, business person special on wednesday so hopefully you're listening to this on your way down to the game or before the game tomorrow to wrap up the Mets series and then a four game that was seven game road trip four games in colorado and then three games uh at city field in new york against the mets um it's gonna be an interesting uh, interesting trip um phillies always you know struggle a little bit with the mets you know this tonight's game aside the 14 to 3 win they do struggle with new york and it, it you know the colorado that field out there is the cesspool of baseball um, because it's just you can't pitch. Yeah, nobody it, can. Nobody can pitch. Colorado is so. weird. I, I kind of like them coming into the season. They've played terribly so far. I believe they're six and twelve, and I, I think that they're in last place in the NL West. I haven't looked at it. Um, yeah, they haven't won at home yet this season. So uh, they'll be they'll be uh, I think looking to get win number one at Coors Field when the Phillies visit there. Uh, that's that's interesting because the Rockies typically play well at home uh, as do you know every as does every team in every sport but um, it's it, I don't know. They, they've scuffled out of the gate so maybe they the Phillies can kind of keep that going for at least one more series. Yeah I mean the one thing about you know the Rockies is, is that they are not getting any pitching at all. Um, I don't know how that. I don't know how anybody. Although I should say, I mean, I guess that um, Herman Marquez had a uh, no hitter going the other night, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he was the one guy. But other than that, yeah, Kyle um, Freeland hasn't been very good this no, year John, so far. John, John Gray's just mediocre at best. Uh, yeah. Chad Chad Bettis stinks. Um, and I don't even think do they even have a fifth pitcher. I guess Tyler Anderson. He still he might be hurt still. I mean, he was hurt earlier this year. Um, they don't really. They had nothing. So you're going to get bad pitching from them. Um, and then the question is, what do the Phillies give you pitching wise? If the Phillies pitching can just be average, like you were pointing out, Jared Eikhoff, Um, If you could get a Jared Eikhoff type performance from your starting pitchers in those four games in Colorado, you'd probably win three out of four. Yep. So anyway, that's what's coming up for the Phillies, and then uh, we'll we'll record again next week. Uh, either Monday or Tuesday, depending on uh, on our schedules, see how it works out. Um, but be sure to, uh, when you're listening to this, uh, to also uh, subscribe to and download the other 
uh, podcasts on the Crossing Broad Podcasting Network. Um, got a new Snow the Goalie coming up later this week. Uh, to, even though the Flyers are in the offseason, just hired a brand new coach. So Russ and I will be talking about Elaine Vigneault as the new Philadelphia Flyers coach and how he fits uh, into the uh, into the organization. Can't wait um, to hear all the Flyers fans try to pronounce that name. I know. It's, it's, it's Vignot. Yeah. Is what, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's Vigno is the pronounce the correct pronunciation. Um, so we'll have one of them coming up. I know that there's a crossing broadcast uh, really focusing a lot these days on the uh, Sixers and their playoff uh, series with the Brooklyn Nets tied at one at, at this juncture, but they're also going to be doing a little bit of uh, Eagles draft cut stuff coming up. I know the draft's coming up in, what, 10 days? Uh, so they'll be uh, doing that, Kevin Kincaid and Russ uh, Joy on that one. Um, and then the uh, the two soccer podcasts, it's always soccer in Philadelphia with the Red Hot Philadelphia Union, Kevin Kincaid and a variety of uh, co-hosts, and uh, Crossing Broad FC for all of those of you who like uh, soccer over overseas. Uh, as Russ and Phil Kaidel talk all about uh, the 65,000 leagues that take place in Europe. So um, anyway, um, be sure to check out all of those uh, podcasts as well. Uh, subscribe, leave us a review. No, we haven't had a review. We keep getting five-star ratings, Bob. But nobody Everybody wants le- to write anything. But nobody yeah. wants to write anything. Like, I keep look, I always check to see, and we get we consistently get five-star ratings, which is fantastic. We love the listeners for giving us those. But we haven't had a review since December. Yeah, write something mean. You know, let yeah, us. Know. I don't care. Yeah, yeah. If, 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 even if it's negative, we don't care. Just give us a review. If you give us a, the next review, we'll read. I'll read it out on the show. I mean, that's something yeah, Russ yeah. does all the time on the on the other shows. Um, but I, yeah, I'll, I'll give it a read. We haven't done that on this show, but I'll do it. I'll I'll read it and see what people have to say uh, about the podcast. So. Um, that should do it, right? Yeah, that's that's it for me. It's bedtime, Good. man. It is bedtime. <laughs> uh, so for Bob Wankel uh, at BW Crossing Broad on Twitter, I'm Anthony Sanfilippo at Ant San Philly, uh, and we will see you next week. <laughs>